Thanks. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, good morning, church. Super good to see you all here. Uh, if you're joining us online, glad to have you as well. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, we are honored to have you here with us. If you're looking for a uh, perfect church, I'm sorry you didn't find it, but I'm glad you stopped here anyway. Uh, this is not a uh, place with perfect people, but we are a people um, who are chasing after a perfect God who is making us more like him every day. And, uh, and so just want to say that, like you're welcome here, even 49ers fans, I think there's a few around here, you're welcome here. Uh, no, I can, I can get behind the 49ers today, it was last week that I had the problem, but anyway, glad you're here. Um, we are uh, about to step into a new series together, going through 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. Um, before we do that, just a quick reminder, this afternoon um, at 5 o'clock, we do have our all-member meeting. This is our, um, kind of our annual routine in January. Just want to make sure that's on your calendar. If not, you're welcome to come. Um, if you're visiting with us and you're thinking about becoming a member, we welcome you to these um, all-member meetings. It's not exclusive. We're not checking your ID at the door. Um, this is a great time to kind of see behind the scenes of what, kind of what it looks like to be the church here. So just welcome you to come to that meeting at 5 o'clock this afternoon. Um, all right, so we are going to step into 1 Peter and really only going to make it through two verses today. Uh, in these two verses, we'll be dealing with the Trinity predestination and suffering, so thanks for that, Peter, um, but um, just a little historical context I think will help, like super helpful. Um, so I've known um, before studying First Peter to get ready for this series that Peter is riding into a time of persecution, a time when Christians were being persecuted for their faith, and, and so I've known that about Peter's letters, but digging into the history this week and getting a little bit further into the weeds um, the best prediction of this letter being written is that it was written from Rome uh, by Peter somewhere around 62 to 63 AD, which would have meant that it was written during the time of the reign of Nero, and, uh, and it was written just before um, Nero started his widespread physical persecution against the church. So at this point in church history, the Christians were experiencing suffering and persecution, but it was primarily social, okay? So I hear that and I go, oh, wow, that sounds a little bit, if not a lot, like the world that we're living in, that this emergence of persecution against Christians and against the church, at least in the continental U.S., is primarily social. Um, people being ostracized, people being uh, labeled names, people... Um, being recipients of just harsh treatment, both in person and then especially online, the courageous platform of Facebook or Twitter, right? And so I, as I'm reading that this week, I'm thinking more and more about us and more and more about the kind of the shift we're seeing in the culture today um, towards Christians. And so um, I really want to pay attention in that way. Um, this book is not just about suffering, but it's a, it's a letter written by Peter to Christians who are suffering persecution. And um, what has taken place since the launch of the church and somewhere around 62, 63 AD is that um, even though physical persecution hasn't really begun widespread uh, there in Rome, they have begun to round up Christians and ship them out, deport them out of Rome to the smaller like cities and uh, towns and villages around Asia Minor. And these are the people that Peter is writing to. More than likely, these Christians, who most of them probably were in Rome at some point, but because of their faith in Jesus, they were rounded up 
and deported. As we step into the letter, we start thinking about suffering. Um, five big questions that, that come up. These may all relate to you. Maybe one of them relates to you. Maybe you walked in this morning asking this question about something hard that you're going through right now. The big questions it seems like Peter is going to address are these. Does God know what I'm going through? You ever ask that question? Can you see me? Are you aware of how hard this is? Does God love me? Or is this hard thing I'm going through evidence that God is mad at me or he hates me or that he's cursed me? Does God love me? Is God good? It's one thing to believe that God is real. It's a whole other thing to believe that he's not only real, but he's also good. Is God good? Is God still working in my life? I feel abandoned. I feel like it's been a long time since I've heard from him or experienced him. I, when I pray, it just kind of seems like my prayers hit the ceiling and kind of fall back to the earth. Is God still working in my life? And maybe even this question, if you're a Christian, am I even saved? Am I even saved? Did I actually mean it? Or is this hard thing I'm going through evidence that I'm not saved? These are questions that Peter's going to be addressing as we move through this letter. Um, we're going to start in verse 1 together, and really verses 1 and 2 is the 30,000-foot flyover. Um, so we're going to kind of hit some big topics, but we're not going to get too far into the weeds. Um, and then when we get back next week into verse 3, we'll start digging in. So he begins by introducing himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was um, a firsthand eyewitness of the teachings, the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. He is an apostle. To those, this is who he's writing to, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Bithynia. And so, just right off the bat, as he introduces like who he's writing to, he uses some interesting descriptive words to describe them. He calls them elect exiles. So we're going to walk through these two words together. First of all, this word elect in the Greek language just simply means to, chose, to choose, to be chosen. Okay, So oftentimes in the doctrine of election, we use the word election, the elect, um, and it sounds like kind of a, um, a word that would describe a superior race. These are the elect. These are the chosen few. But the word just quite simply means chosen. So if you go into the grocery store and you choose Kraft macaroni and cheese over the off-brand, you chose, you elected Kraft macaroni and cheese. Now, when you apply that to human beings, the meaning gets bigger, but that's what it means, those who are chosen. This word exile, I've already kind of described for you historically what's happening to Christians. They're being dispersed and shipped out and deported, and they're exiles. Um, this is a description of somebody who is a foreigner uh, temporarily in a place, like someone who is residing in a place where they're not a citizen. That's the word exile here, a foreigner. Now, this wording, if you were Jewish, it would have brought to mind a time in human history where the Jews themselves were exiled and dispersed. And so the language would have been familiar to this audience, but here it's like Peter's applying it to them. He's not just saying, hey, remember when God's people were exiled? He's saying, hey, you are chosen exiles who have been dispersed. 
And so this idea here that they are exiles really has a literal implication. But there's also, for us here today, who have not been dispersed, it has a spiritual implication as well. So we've already spoken literally about these Christians who have been deported from Rome. But spiritually speaking, this will apply to all of us. I want you to think about this. So in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews begins in the first few verses defining faith and then begins to list different men and women of faith as examples, as witnesses who've gone before us. So we look to their life and their example. And right there in Hebrews 11, picking up in verse 13, um, the author begins to deal with our spiritual exile. Okay, so even if you're still living in the county you were born in and you're a citizen both locally and you're like, hey, I don't know what it means to be an exile. Spiritually speaking, the author of Hebrews would say this, verse 13. These, the list of men and women in the faith, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So God made promises to these men and women in the Old Testament, and they didn't really get to receive all that God had promised. They could see it only from a distance. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So it wasn't just that they were kind of traveling internationally and they were away from their homeland. Just being on earth meant that they were exiles. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are, speak, are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, where they were born, where they grew up, they would have had opportunity to return. Last verse in Hebrews 11, I want to read today, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So the idea that we are all spiritual exiles. Something about the, the world we live in, this earth that we live on, doesn't quite feel like home. I feel like a stranger in a foreign land, and I desire a better city, a better home, a better land, and I can travel the globe over and over and over again, and I'll never find it here on earth because the, this craving inside, the desire inside is actually for a heavenly home, a place where I get to reside with God, and he resides with me. And so, as we're listening to Peter write to people who literally had been exiled, we understand, too, that they were spiritual exiles, just like us. And so it's interesting to put these two things together when we think about being God's people, that he calls them chosen exiles, or elect exiles. On one hand, one of those words sounds really affirming. God's for me, he likes me, he chose me, he selected me. And then the other one is like, yeah, but look at what's going on. And I'm exiled, I'm being right, deported and I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted. And Peter's describing them with those two words. That one does not supersede the other or render one of, one of the words null and void that I can both be chosen, loved by God, and at the same time be going through immense suffering as an exile. We'll get into verse 2 now, and I'm going to read all of it, and then we'll come back. Um, verse 2, 
according to. So the recipients of the letter are chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And so as Peter, and we'll see, his heart here is to encourage them that grace and peace may be multiplied, begins with a a Trinitarian view of God. That this idea that God is three persons in one is not a tertiary thing to, to go, yeah, if I have time, I'll get to that. Something about God being known as a Trinitarian God is key to Peter's encouragement to those who are suffering. Each person of the Trinity having a role here foreknowledge of the Father, we have the sanctification of the Spirit, Spirit, and then we have obedience to Jesus having been sprinkled by His blood. Father, Spirit, Son. We aren't going to fully unpack systematically the doctrine of the Trinity, but there are things that we can infer and apply to our lives from here and look at and go, yeah, that's obvious about understanding God this way. First of all, this is how God introduces himself to us, okay? The idea that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, didn't come out of a brainstorming session among the apostles. What would be a good way to think about God? I know, let's describe him this way. God introduces himself to us in a plurality of persons. Let us make man in our image, We know it's the Father who sends the Son, who is then led by the Spirit, both into the desert for temptation, but to the cross to die. And as as he is resurrected from the dead and ascends back to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, the Son to the Father, he then sends his Spirit to launch the church. And so there's come some false views of the Trinity. One that's probably most commonly talked about is this idea that God just exists in three modes— So he was father, and he's like, hey, now I'm going to go be the son, so I'm going to leave heaven, I'm going to go be the son, and then he goes back to heaven, and then he leaves heaven and comes back to be the spirit. What what we understand about the way God reveals himself to us is that he is simultaneously three persons in one. But another false idea, we go, oh, then there's three gods. Well, that's not at all how he reveals himself. That would be polytheism, having multiple gods. And God's like, no, I'm one God, existing in three persons let your mind be blown but more than that let your hearts be settled it's just not just a mind game that god is playing with his creation something about that anchors our hearts and our souls to what is true and gives us peace and grace in the midst of suffering and hardship You think about what existed before creation, God existed. So we don't know what that was really like, but we do know this, if God existed, and I believe he did, he's always existed, he existed in three persons, so we do know one thing that existed, relationship. Love and justice have always existed amongst the Trinity. Intimacy has always existed. Attachment personal relationship the father has always known the son the son has always known the father the father has always known the spirit the spirit has always honored the son and there has always existed 
love, justice, intimacy, connection, attachment, unity, harmony. Those things didn't come about after creation. So whatever hope we have in God, we have hope in this God who has always existed in three persons. And then after creation, we see this relationship play out in a way that reinforces those things about God, that he is loving and he is just. You see that relationship between the Father and the Son, for God so loved the world, yes, that he did what? He sent his only begotten Son. The Son whom he loved. The Father loved Jesus. He wasn't mad at the Son, right? It wasn't like, oh, you go do the cross thing. No, the Father loved the Son. He sent a Son whom he loved, yet his Son went to die for the sake of justice. And so we can see that the truths about God and the universe through the relationship between the Father, the Son, the Spirit. You know, it's the Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Right? If those guys were brothers, what a mean trick. Right? That sounds like a setup. But the Spirit and the Son aren't brothers. And the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness in love, in honor and respect. Think about that. It's, it's the Father who says to Jesus, the cross is yours to bear. And in doing so, he is nonetheless loving. And so we don't know everything, and we can't wrap our minds fully around the Trinity, but we can at least know those things, right? We can at least pay attention to those things and go, something about anchoring your soul to that God gives you hope and peace and multiplies your grace in the midst of suffering. I'm going to get into now the role of the Father was the foreknowledge piece, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But I want to take a second just to look at the graphic. Um, I love this graphic. I, I didn't come up with it. I had to sign off on it, but I didn't come up with it. So the way it works is I work with preaching team, and we put together sermon series and lay out the year, and then our communications team comes behind and is like reading all the sermon series that we're doing. They're like, I wonder what graphics would like really reinforce the main point we don't just want to find something cute and cuddly like we really want whatever we put up on the screen we'd rather just have a black screen than to put something up that doesn't reinforce the theology and the direction of the series and so communications team called me in I was like hey come look at this graphic and there was a few to choose from but I love this graphic I love this graphic because see the the, the title full of hope is really kind of the subtitle of the series that somehow if we'll pay attention to what God is saying through Peter we will be full of hope like even in hardship and suffering. And what I love about this image here is first of all, the, just the freshly tilled soil. Like you see the green little budding plant there, but if you rewind this about two or three days, all you're gonna have is the freshly tilled soil, right? So you, you hope there's something underneath it coming to life, but, but you can't see the evidence of it. So you just see freshly tilled soil. And I love freshly tilled soil. I worked as a, rancher and farmer for a few years and got to plow large acres of soil there's something that you may not realize if you've ever stood behind a tiller you probably do that the tilling of soil is violent the soil doesn't till easily it doesn't just break up like play-doh in your hands like you have to be violent with the soil like to plow a big field i've got a tractor and i'm behind me i'm this plow with these razor sharp discs that are constantly cutting into the earth and ripping it open and tearing it. And so the process of tilling soil is a violent thing. 
But we know that's absolutely necessary in order for the seeds to reach the depth they need to be at to come to life. And so what I love about this graphic in particular is this, this budding green plant of hope. Knowing what took place the days before this. The, rare, the, the ripping and the tearing of the soil, the turning of it, the pre- preparation for what God wanted to grow. And I think about our hearts in the same way. Now, I don't believe that God only works through hardship, but I do believe he works in significant ways through hardship and suffering. And we're going to learn that in this series together. Oftentimes, as you go through hard things in life, it feels like the, the soil of your heart is being tilled, ripped open at times. Ah, oh, that hurts. Why is this? Why we ask these questions, why is this going on? God, does this mean you don't love me? And yet, this is where our hearts become most fertile for God's truths to be planted and to come to life. So now we'll step back into this identity of this Trinitarian God and what he's up to in the midst of suffering. Well, the first thing he mentions here is that they are chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's going to bring up another hard doctrine about God, and that's the foreknowing and the predestination of the forechoosing of God. So this word here in Greek language, we translate foreknew, um, it can mean to foreknow or and forechoose. So if you just know something ahead of time, but you don't choose to do anything about it, that's foreknowing. And that's a literal translation of this word. It could be all that is meant by this. God knew ahead of time about your suffering. He foreknew it. But it could also be translated forechoose, which is a little stronger, isn't it? Not only does God foreknow, he forechooses things. And so in the Christian church, historically, there have been a, a variety of different ways that the church has interpreted this understanding of who God is. And so you have these different camps of thought. And probably in this particular conversation, the two that are like most opposed would be Calvinism on one end of a spectrum and then Arminianism on the other end. Now, you don't have to remember those words um, to get something out of this, but the idea is that there's one camp who would acknowledge themselves as Calvinists. They follow the teachings of John Calvin. They follow his doctrine of what's outlined in the word tulip, uh, to a T. And the the, the basic understanding of a hyper-Calvinist would be that God selects, chooses, ordains every moment of every atom, of every molecule, and every thought. That's the hype, kind of a hyper version of Calvinism. God predicts and predestines and has designed everything, including you sitting here looking at me right now going, could that be true? If you're sitting there thinking that, a Calvinist would go, yeah, and God knew you were going to say that or think that, and that's Calvinism. So on the other end of the spectrum is this, again, hyper-Arminianism, where it's like, no, God wound the universe up like a clock, set it on the table, then, then hands off. Let's just see what happens, and whatever comes up, comes up, and I'll give free will to man and kind of free will to the universe and created order, and I'm just going to let what I've designed unfold, and I'm just going to watch it. Those are two ends of a spectrum, and and people who love Jesus exist in both of those camps and all along the spectrum. And I'm not here today to convince you or to, to, to move you into one camp or the other. My job today is just to teach the Word and let you wrestle with whatever comes up. And so I want to dig into this idea here of that that God the Father foreknew them as chosen exiles. The word here is prognosis. 
Um, we use that now, the word prognosis in English. You go to the doctor, and he's like, hey, let me tell you how this is going to go. Here's your prognosis. And it's kind of an educated guess. This was a much stronger idea of prognosis here. It's the Greek word prognosis, uh, to foreknow or to forechoose. We're looking at Jesus himself. This word gets used. So take a second. Think about Jesus, the life of Jesus. In Acts 2.23, Peter's preaching. I think it's the first sermon in the church ever. And Peter's preaching. And he says this about Jesus in Acts 2.23. He says, this Jesus delivered up. So he's talking about the arrest and and the crucifixion of Jesus. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge prognosis of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's an interesting wording there. So the foreknowing of Jesus going to the cross was the definite plan of God the Father. It was a plan unfolding. God predicted it. He knew it. He planned it. He predestined it. And yet, we have men killing Jesus. Actively, willingly, nailing Jesus to the cross. So who, by whose will was Jesus killed? Right? Now you feel the tension, right? Was it those mean Roman soldiers and Pilate? Or was it this loving Heavenly Father who sent him? In another place, and this will come up actually in a few weeks um, further down in 1 Peter 1, about Jesus, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or revealed in the last times for the sake of you. So Peter's going to say, like, that Jesus, like, coming to earth, being born, living, dying, like, all that was kind of the, was the plan of God. It was foreknown. God didn't get in a bind and go, now what am I going to do? They've made a mess of it. God had already planned to send the Son at or before the foundation of the world. So then we begin to look at, well, how does this word get used to describe God's people? This foreknowing. Romans 8, starting in verse 28. And we, Christians, know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Which, by the way, earlier in this chapter, he talks about suffering. So he's, he's talking about everything working together for your good, including your suffering. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, prognosis, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're the, we're the many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he call, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's something to wrestle with. I'm just talking about those who are in Christ. Those people who everything works out for the good of them have been foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Ephesians chapter 1 says it this way. Again, I'm just trying to let the scriptures speak for themselves. I'm not trying to sway anybody's opinion. These are things I wrestle with myself. Ephesians 1 says this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reference there to the Trinity. 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Basic English says this, that God, if you're in Christ, he chose you in Jesus before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to him as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So this would indicate that it's not just referring to God's foreknowing, but that in some way God is forechoosing to set his his covenantal love on his people. One of the things I love about the Ephesians reference is how it's connected predestination and adoption. I start thinking God as a loving father. He's the kind of loving father who chooses kids who aren't his own and adopts them into his family. Like that metaphor is all throughout the Old and New Testament. So whatever it means that God is a choosing God, a foreknowing God, a predestining God, he's doing that as a loving father. It's like he, he takes a trip to the orphanage and is like, I'll take them, I'll choose them, I'll elect them to be mine, to be adopted into my family, to be loved as though they are my own. Those who are not my people will become my people. And so I, again, we're gonna, I'm not here to wrestle with the doctrine and give you answers so you can feel good about wherever you land, but to say this is clearly what the Bible teaches. And Peter thought it was really important that Christians who are going through suffering anchor their souls to this kind of God who doesn't get caught off guard. He doesn't get surprised. And he is the kind of God who can allow hardship and suffering for those whom he loves, and he is nonetheless good. So Peter references the Father who foreknew them. His next reference here, and going back to verse 2, is this, that, that we were chosen exiles, foreknown by the Father, and that we are also in the sanctification of the Spirit. Again, this is the 30,000-foot flyover. It's not going to unpack it all. Sanctification is two basic understandings. One is to be set apart. So if you're in Christ, you've been set apart. You've actually been rendered as holy and blameless, which is pretty amazing. So it's the description of those who are in Christ being set apart, adopted into the family. You now belong to God. And it's an indication of a process that we encounter daily as Christians. We are being sanctified. We've already been set apart, and God is still working in you, in me. It's the, the now and the not yet. It's who I already am in Christ and who I'm still not yet in Christ. And I am every day becoming who I already am in Christ. Sanctification. Now, we won't go any deeper into that doctrine, but to say, listen, church, God is still sanctifying you in the Spirit. Just because things are hard doesn't mean God has quit working. Matter of fact, James 1 and Romans 5 are going to argue that God works more abundantly in the suffering. The sanctification, like the dial is turned up when things get hard. So he reminds the church, he reminds us, that even as we are exiles, in a foreign land, and we are encountering persecution. We were chosen by the Father. We were foreknown. And God is still working in us. He's still sanctifying us in the Spirit 
for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ. Am I perfectly obedient to Christ today? No, but I'm every day becoming more and more obedient to Christ. Why would I want to do that? Because he's mean, and if you don't obey him, he punishes you? No, because obedience to his commands leads to abundant life. Peter's going to say, it's actually good for us to obey Jesus. We actually want what's not good for us. We've got to be talked into what's good for us, so to speak. And obedience to Jesus is actually life-giving. And that's the work the Spirit's doing in you and me. Calling us to obedience, not to get God's love, but because we already have it. He reminds them of their salvation and for sprinkling with his blood. And this is an Old Testament description of the sacrifices in the temple. The way that sins were forgiven was through the sprinkling of blood. We've talked about this recently. We have a new and better sacrifice now. It was, it was a once and for all sacrifice. Like Jesus doesn't have to keep showing up and spilling blood on the altar for the forgiveness of sins. It's a once and for all sacrifice. And he's reminding these Christians that you've been sprinkled with his blood. Your sins are forgiven according to the promises of God. And his heart here comes out in these few words. Here's my heart for you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. If God's grace and his peace can be multiplied to you, even when things are hard, you can be full of hope. Does God know what I'm going through? Yes, because he's a foreknowing God. He doesn't just know it in real time, he actually foreknew it. Does God love me? Yes. In the same way that the Father loved and loves the Son, even in his suffering, the Father loves you in your suffering. Is God good? Yeah. He redeems our suffering and brings good for us out of our suffering. It works together for our good. Is God still working in my life? Yes, even in suffering. God is still sanctifying me. Am I saved? Yes. Even in my suffering, I am still forgiven and still chosen. I want to end with just some words here that kind of came out of my heart and mind as I wrapped up this passage. First Peter 1, God's chosen people are also exiles in a foreign and hostile land. Peter wants his readers to be reminded that none of this is beyond the scope of God's sovereign reign or his ability to see them in their suffering and either rescue them from their suffering or sustain them through their suffering. Peter reminds his readers that God took the initiative to choose them and draw them into a loving, redemptive relationship. Peter positions God in his rightful place as the supreme being over the universe. In our human attempt to let God off the hook, sometimes we'll conclude something like this. If God is good and I am suffering as one of his children, there must be some force outside of God's control that is causing the suffering or else God would be doing something about it if he could. 
This doesn't seem to be Peter's approach to helping us understand the suffering of God's people. He's not blaming it on some third-party being. Peter is presenting God as both loving and in supreme control, and out of his supreme control, he is allowing the suffering of his children whom he has chosen, and he is nonetheless good. Now, that's heavy but so is the suffering of your life. You live in a fallen world. I'm not wishing suffering on you. Like Peter, I I want grace and peace to be multiplied, but you live in a fallen world. And one of the primary marks of the fallen world that we live in are both sin and suffering. Where there is sin, there is suffering. And oftentimes in response to suffering, there's more sin. And so, like, this is heavy and weighty, but so is the life that we've been called to live. And so we're going to walk through this letter together and pay attention to further counsel, not just from Peter, but from God through Peter for our lives. But if nothing else, you've been given permission to come in here today and be honest about what you're going through. Church, visitors, we don't need you to have it together. You know that pressure? Ooh, I got to kind of pull it together or look like I have it together so they'll accept me. Hey, we don't, we don't need you to have it together. And we don't need you to pretend like it's all falling apart either. What we want is for you to come into this space with whatever you got. We know the world that you live in because we live in it too. So whatever you're coming in with, you bring that in here. And, and we don't have the fix for it but we have an invitation for you to bring that brokenness into the presence of the, of the Father. He's good. To give him space to work and sanctification in your life. So I want to end with a few questions for us to think about here as we get ready to wrap up. What does it tell you about God to know that he says he has chosen you? I'm going to encourage you to wrestle with that. What does that say to you about who he is and what he thinks of you? What are some of the ways that you feel like a foreigner in this world? When you hear that description of being an exile or living in a foreign land, like what are some of the things you encounter? I, I know there's some things I encounter on a weekly basis, but what do you encounter that remind you? Now, if we're not careful, we'll normalize these things and go, oh, this is all normal. And you're like, no, take a step back. What is it about the world you live in that would bear evidence that you are, in fact, an exile or a foreigner in the world today? And then I want you to think about this, going back to that image of the soil being kind of ripped open and not not being able to see what's below the surface. I want you to think about the Holy Spirit working in your life that way. What ways... What way or what ways are the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit working in your life today? Where is he kind of bumping up against your flesh and challenging you and molding you and stretching you or pressing you or embracing you? Or Are you aware of some of the sanctification happening in your life like right now? And how does this love and forgiveness of Jesus through the sprinkling of his blood, how does that compel you towards obedience to him? Some things to think about here. So I'm going to pray for us now, and 
Our prayer partners will be up at the front on the sides. If there's something going on in your life and you just want to bring, bring it out into the light, tell the truth about something going on, you need prayer over something that's really hard, the invitation is open. Um, if there's something else you'd like to talk about, you want to ask questions about the church, um, we'll have elders in the common area out here, just outside these doors after the service. We're happy to answer questions about the church, uh, talk to you about anything going on, really. I pray with you as well. So I'm going to pray for us. Our, our worship team will come out, lead us in time of singing, and then we're going to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word. God, week after week, we have something that doesn't change that we can anchor our souls to. We find that, God, in your word. I'm so thankful that your word doesn't change. Um, and God, really, it's bigger than that. That's an indication that you don't change. And so we're so thankful that even though the world that we live in feels so unstable at times and it's changing so fast at times and other times it feels so hostile, we're just so thankful, God, that our souls are tethered to you and you don't change. So, Father, now I just want to bring to mind the suffering that's represented even in this room, in this space. Those who may have come in today looking for hope, looking for some indication that you are good. Father, now as we sing, I pray you would do what only you can do and draw men and women to yourself. Draw us to you, O oh God. Maybe some of us here today have a distorted view of who you are and you seem like a far-off deity or an angry dad, and I just pray, God, you could break through that today with your spirit. Father, that could be replaced by a biblical view of who you are. Thank you for being a loving Father. Thank you for foreknowing us, sanctifying us, and saving us. In Jesus' name.